Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. Where in every episode I handpick a different piece of short fiction and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them. And I hope you will too. And today, y'all, we have a fascinating story that uses the story of a family to explore some pioneering technology. It's written by Genevieve Valentine, who is a novelist, a comic book writer, and of course, a short story writer whose fiction has appeared in over a dozen years' best collections. This story is called Small Medicine, and we follow the relationship, as it were, of a young girl and her grandmother. And I'll say that with a big G, grandmother. And you'll understand what I mean in a little bit. This family in the story is impacted by artificial intelligence and the way it interacts with and even replaces human actions. And in this story, that includes the use of nanorobots. Now, nanorobots are real, y'all. They exist in real form right now. There was a study just last year at the University of Texas at San Antonio that experimented with nanorobots moving cells to align with one another, actually pushing cells into different locations and seeing if it's possible to use them to deliver medication into a cell. This is crazy, y'all. But nanobots are here, and they're not going away. Obviously, the potential for the use in medicine of nanorobots is huge. It could bring massive benefits to humanity. And this is a story that really looks at the philosophical angle of that conundrum. What is humanity's relationship to robots, including these robots that we might not even be able to see with our eyes? Check out the episode description for content advisories, if you're so inclined. If you're ready, let's take a deep breath. And begin. Small Medicine by Genevieve Valentine. 
You remember your grandmother? They'd said to Sophia when she was seven, and she looked up and said, Not this one. Her parents always told it smiling, like it was clever of her to have noticed grandmother had changed. Who could have told the difference? They asked each other. And her grandfather nodded his familiar amazement, and in the corner, the machine that wasn't her grandmother looked back and forth with a smile. Her grandmother died. It's all right that she did. Grandparents die. Peter at school's grandparents had died. But grandmother must have known grandfather would miss her too much because she had herself copied and Maury made a version of her that was perfect enough for grandfather. That first time they brought grandmother to see Sophia, the machine bent over a little rested open hands on her knees like anyone did when they were trying to be friendly to a child they'd never met. I'm Theodosia, your grandmother. You're not my grandmother, she thought, held out her right hand on the end of an arm stretched as long as it could go. It was a very brief pause before grandmother reached out to meet her handshake. In life, she had always been polite. They must have programmed her to love telling stories more than her real grandmother had because whenever her parents took Sophia to visit, grandmother got her alone as soon as she could and tucked Sophia up against her side for reading. She was squishy, like flesh, but always the same temperature. A little cool in the summer, a little warm in the winter. And if you pressed your hand hard enough to her side, there was a curved metal panel where ribs should be. She'd read stories about foxes and mermaids and ghosts, about whales and the birds that lived in cracks in the mountains. When her parents weren't around, Grandmother read books about Tom, who had problems at school because some kids were mean, because they didn't have a work assignment yet and weren't sure what they were good at, because they had done something wrong on a test and felt guilty until they confessed to the kindly schoolmaster. What was Tom assigned? Sophia asked once. The book doesn't say, little Sofa, said Grandmother. It had been her grandmother's name for her. Neither of them really wanted her to say it, and it scratched. Did he like it? Assignments are given because of what you're good at, little Sofa, not because of what you like. Sophia didn't know anyone like this. These were charity kids who lived at their schools, not like a normal school. And at first, it was like the mermaid stories, but she thought about Tom more than she ever thought about ghosts. She asked her parents once, while working on her homework, polymer sculptures, smoke swirls of blue and gray. She hated it. What would happen to Tom if he hated his work assignment? 
Next time they went to visit Grandmother, she read a story about monkeys who never came down from the trees. I want a story about Tom, Sophia said. There was a little pause. Under her shoulder, something inside Grandmother was whirring. I don't know any stories about Tom, Grandmother said. Would you like a story about a rabbit that lives in the snow? That was strange, Sophia thought, a cloud gathering inside her just above her stomach. But she said, yes. Grandmother pulled her closer and opened the book so it was half on her lap and half on Sophia's, so Sophia could help her turn the pages. Sophia's shoulder pressed into Grandmother's side, Grandmother's arm a cradle, slightly cool, on the back of her neck. Grandmother was the one who noticed Sophia's neck was swollen. She was the one who first mentioned that something must be wrong. The pharmaceutical company had ads for it now, in public on buses for people to think about alongside vocational training and designer bags. Sophia always ends up right in front of one, a law of public transit. There's a picture of a Victorian nursemaid hustling some dour, sepia-toned children into a technicolor future as doctors smile into middle space. There's copy about medicine finally being able to take care of them the way you would if you could. Nanny Med, they named it. And honestly, somebody should be ashamed of that branding. She can imagine the hundreds of hours of marketing meetings that led to someone finally caving into that. The promise underneath? Small medicine. Big difference. The fine print isn't very fine. The costs are significant, but they've never pretended this is a solution for the people. The results are glowing, the benefits immense, the side effects minimal. There hasn't been a single death in the nano program. There wouldn't be. At Mori, we know you care. We know you love your family. We know you worry about leaving them behind. And we know you've asked for more information about us. Which means you're thinking about giving your family the greatest gift of all. Studies have shown the devastating impact grief has on family bonds and mental health. The departure of someone beloved is a tragedy without a proper name. Could you let the people you love live without you? If they'd brought Grandmother back just for her, it would have been simpler. Worse, but simpler. But when they come to visit... Her mother's eyes still get misty when Grandmother stands up to embrace her. Grandfather still sits beside her as they watch TV at night, and when they all go out for dinner, he holds her hand 
to help her in and out of the car. She doesn't remember him ever doing that for her real grandmother. Maybe he needs to do it now. Sophia doesn't know if a robot's balance is better or worse than hers. Well, not hers. She has the best balance of anyone she knows. She can do a dozen cartwheels and never even be lightheaded. The nanos make sure. But she's also seen whole days go by. When Grandfather asks her about school and watches movies with her father and gives off-kilter advice to her mother and never looks once at the corner where Grandmother's sitting, eyes shifting with the conversation, but mouth never moving. Or sometimes, not even that. They haven't explained to her yet that Grandmother has settings that you can close her off whenever you're tired of her. She's new to her nanos. Maybe they just didn't want to give Sophia any ideas. Technically, they're in her system to regulate her antibodies and moderate her immune responses. You're lucky you caught it when you did, the doctor told her parents. And they nodded like they'd caught anything. What will happen to me now? Sophia asked. She remembers thinking of grandmother's metal plate, even though she could feel that nothing like that had happened. She couldn't feel that anything had happened at all. But it had. Because while the doctor explained to her parents the wonderful side effect of nanos, he smiled calmly and made a cut with his scalpel above her knee. And before she could even open her mouth to cry, the skin was furling back together, smoothing over. It still stung. Psychosomatic, every doctor sensed it said when she told them it hurt. But there was nothing left of the injury. If it wasn't for the stream of blood that was already drying up, you'd never know that it had ever been a wound. No one would have believed her if she'd told them. They take the family on a trip the next year to celebrate. Sophia had always been a little tired, a little sickly before the nanos, just enough that the trip now felt like something her parents had been wanting to do, and she'd been holding them back. The resort is at the top of the mountain, surrounded by wide lawns and dropping off to views of the city and the river valley below. Her parents go skiing. Her grandfather spends long afternoons in the conservatory, speaking to a woman who looks a little younger than he is, who smiles at his jokes sometimes and sometimes looks away when he's talking, and he has to talk about something else to get her to look at him again. Sophia can see it from the library, wonders if he knows. She ends up being with Grandmother a lot, because when she doesn't ask to spend time with Grandmother, then Grandmother will sit in the hotel room all day without moving. And Sophia's young, ten, maybe, a long time back, but she realizes that Grandmother likes having something to do. Even if it's only to read stories until the little thing inside of her starts whirring from activity and she needs to rest a little while before they get up. 
The library has grown-up books, and Grandmother tries her best to wade through history and to make novels for grown-ups sound interesting. Sophia doesn't care what they read. She's mostly watching her grandfather. Do you see Grandfather? She asks finally. It's a direct question Grandmother has to answer. Grandmother looks up where Grandfather is sitting at a table with the woman. They're sharing a pot of tea. The woman is arguing with him. Grandfather's laughing. He never did this when my grandmother was alive. I remember, Grandmother says. Her voice sounds a little strained from reading. But she isn't angry, which she should be if Grandfather was leaving her alone like this. Not like the machines that help you at the bank that are always apologizing and never get angry. You're not my grandmother, she thinks, folds her arms, wonders why it stings. I want to go outside, she says. She's embarrassed that she has to hold grandmother's arm. Grandmother's balance on the rocks isn't very good at all, and she purposely walks them all the way across the lawn, as slow as she can, so that everyone in the whole conservatory sees them. Sophia hopes they're asking about that angry girl and that poor abandoned woman. They don't have to know grandmother's a memento. That's not their business. Grandfather should feel as guilty as if she were real. They end up at one of the overlooks, where there are a few chairs and tables left for guests to sit near the railing and enjoy the steep drop of the valley, the little pockmarks of all the houses. The back of Sophia's neck burns, and her hands are sweaty, and she hates everything, everything that's happening to her. I could jump, Sophia thinks. If she jumped, the nanos would repair her. They might blow out before they finished, depending on the damage and how fast they could breed, but by the time the paramedics reached her, her spinal cord would be laced up tight, her pulverized face propped up the way the nanos knew her skull should look. If she lived another hundred years, she'd barely wrinkle. Her skin would be pulled across the bone the way they'd all been told. She'd never look like grandmother, no matter how old she lived to be. If she lived for more than ten seconds before the nanos gave out, she'd be able to see herself dying. The nanos are designed to think her eyesight is important, and it would be the first thing they improved if something went wrong. They have their orders. This is beautiful, says Grandmother. I wish your grandmother could have seen it. There you two are, says her grandfather. And Grandmother turns, gives the smile her grandmother used to, says, Have you seen the view? It reminds me so much of the year we spent in that penthouse apartment where the trees looked like a dollhouse. Grandfather smiles. Sophia looks for signs of guilt, but with him, she can never really tell. I remember, he says, and takes her hand. 
and Sophia looks back and forth, betrayed. She makes fists so tight they cut into her palms, but of course they heal. She doesn't even notice until she gets back to the room and sees the blood already drying. A memorial doll from Mori maps your memory and a personality sequence. The things that make you, uniquely you, into a synthetic reproduction. The process is painstaking and leaves behind a version of you that, while it can never replace you, can comfort those who have lost you. Imagine knowing your parents never have to say goodbye. Imagine knowing you can still read bedtime stories to your children, no matter what may happen. A memorial doll from Mori is a gift you give to everyone who loves you. room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Let's get back to our story. The next time her parents visit grandfather, Sophia stays home. She can't claim she's sick. That doesn't hold much water anymore. She claims a history project that requires a lot of dull reading they can trust her to do at home alone. What's she going to do? Hurt herself? Her father asks on the way out, and her mother laughs softly. It's an old joke between them. It's a relief to have a child so well looked after. Sophia's a coward when it comes right down to it. She tests limits, the depth of a cut, the length of it, the speed of the blade, but she never tests it with something that really matters. She's never cut a finger off. If the nanos don't get to her in time, she'd have a problem. If they don't heal the cuts in time, 
that's different. Then she'd just die. Grandfather and grandmother come to visit in the winter when holiday lights are everywhere and they can walk through the city that drowns out conversation, looking at the rhinestone, dioramas, and holographic models in every window and buying fresh sweet buns from a street vendor. Sophia, eat, says her mother when Sophia tries to put half the bun in her pocket. She chokes it down. She tried to explain to her parents that the nanos are so efficient that she's hardly ever hungry. They tell her to stop making up excuses. Some days, Sophia just doesn't want the argument. Some days, she wants to pick up the bread knife and cut right through her arm. Grandmother eats hers, same as everyone. She's always had just the appetite she should. No one stares all the time they're out. Once or twice, someone gives them a knowing look like they had the same troubles with their memento before they stopped bringing it out. Mother, you should be smiling, says her mother. And grandfather smiles obediently, but her parents glance at each other, and Sophia knows grandmother's not behaving like she should. They'll be opening up her control panel on their computer when they get home, clicking at responsiveness and enthusiasm levels until grandmother smiles when she's supposed to. Peter, from Sophia's class, waves at her vaguely as he crosses the street with his father. She lifts one hand to him as they go by. There are two little scars on his face from spots. You can't see them from here, but she sits behind him in class. One is beside his nose and disappears when he smiles, and one is on his jaw. When he bends his head to his tablet to read notes, the little dark dry mark pulls for an instant at the soft skin of his neck. They're little imperfections. Sophia can't stop looking. Sophia's father gets a chance to oversee the development of a subsidiary of his company. They spend a year in a country where Sophia speaks only a halting version of the language, a child's use, and it makes her sullen not to be able to read as fast as she wants to. It doesn't bother her that she can't talk to her classmates. Programming language is easy to translate, and she doesn't see the point of making friends just for a year. Sometimes she sees a picture of a fox or a flock of birds and thinks about her grandmother and of grandmother and turning the pages carefully as one of them read to her. When she's that lonely, it doesn't matter much. But there are vestiges in this city. They have the company brand on their arms, so you know they're not human. Maury orders, because otherwise there's no way to tell. The people who bring them out are always holding their elbows, their wrists, making sure they take drinks with their mark visible to the room. Sophia thinks about grandmother, gets knots 
in her stomach that never let up. She stops going out places. Museums and libraries and tourist traps always have someone there trying to get their vestige to a point at something. And at some point, Sophia just stares at people's wrists everywhere she goes, because it's easier. Her appetite drops so much, they have to take her to a doctor to check the health of her nanos. They are under strain, the doctor says, and her parents look at her without understanding what the problem could be in a daughter who never gets sick. They come home at the end of the year. The air, they tell their friends, was bad for Sophia. Sophia's 14 when grandmother comes to visit them. Your grandfather thought it would be nice for you to spend some time together, her mother says. Which means she needs a babysitter and that her grandfather doesn't want grandmother anymore. She wonders about the woman from the vacation on the mountain. Hello, Sofa, says grandmother, like it was the first time all over again. Factory settings, thinks Sophia, and goes cold. It's... Sophia. Grandmother smiles a little wider. Oh, come on, Sofa. A grandmother has to have her special names. You're not my grandmother, she thinks. Your special name is a barcode, she says. She knows it's cruel, but she still remembers the top of the mountain. She knows better than this. Grandmother knows that she knows. There's a little pause, grandmother's pupils shifting minutely as she recalibrates, and Sophia wonders if she looks like that too when the nanos are hunting down something that's the matter with her, if her eyes go unfocused as her body concentrates on something without her permission. She waits to be chastised like her real grandmother might have, been too long she doesn't remember, or for grandmother to pretend she doesn't know what Sophia means, but she only says, it's good to see you again. Yeah, I'm programmed to be happy to see you too, says Sophia, closes her bedroom door behind her. She sits down at her computer, pulls up search. Can you turn off a mori, or is that a crime? She asks for grandmother's password. Something's different with grandmother, she says, sounding as solemn and grown up as they liked when she was a child. I want to help. She sits up three nights in a row, reading through code, reading through forums of Mori customers and memento programming enthusiasts who probably have a talking head on their countertop. Grandmother's been recalibrated back to initial client specifications four times, as much as factory settings would suggest. Either grandfather has exacting tastes, or grandmother has made some decisions her grandmother wouldn't have made. Are you hungry? she asks, halfway through making a sandwich, and grandmother's eyebrows go up before she can smile politely and say, No, thank you since you're asking, but I am glad you're eating. I worry about your appetite. She scowls, 
Did mom and dad tell you to say that? No. I don't have to eat much, says Sophia, makes her eyes as wide as the kid on the nanny med poster, drops her voice in parody. I'm being cared for. Blank response from grandmother. Maybe she hasn't seen the ads. They've moved the ads to TV. Surely, grandmother's seen them. The actress they hired for the ad looks nothing like the Victorian picture she comes out of, which is funny considering that nanos can probably alter your appearance if you ask them nicely before you put them in. I got nanos, Sophia says, sits down next to her grandmother. Grandmother sets down her crossword and her pen. Everything's filled out perfectly. Sophia wonders how long she was in her room while Grandmother's been sitting here pretending not to know. Remember? The year we went on vacation. I didn't know that, Grandmother says. Grandfather must have had her dialed down that year. Yeah. After you diagnosed me, they had them put in. I'm sorry, says Grandmother. I'd hoped you just got well. That's the first time anyone suggested she's still sick. Maybe it's the first time anyone's referred to the work of the nanos at all. How are they? Sophia looks up at Grandmother, holds out her hand for the pen. She gouges her arm with it, a long, practiced line from forearm to wrist that leaves a blue thread in with the first welling up of blood. Grandmother doesn't look at her arm. Of course not. Grandmother would know what it looks like when the nanos pull you back together and patch the seams. Sophia watches her grandmother not looking, counts down from ten. Two. She stops, her arms pristine. Guess they got faster, she says, in a voice that feels like it's trapped in a cavern. Grandmother reaches out, her fingers hovering above the place where a scar should be. There's an expression that looks like it hurts her to make. It comes and goes. I don't like that you... Why do you do it? Obvious question. She should have had some offhand answer ready that makes her sound like a careless rich kid, but... She's never told anyone. She shrugs. I'm worried I'll live forever. I'm not even angry. I, I just want to be wrong. Grandmother doesn't say anything. After a little while, Sophia settles against her. My grandmother's name was Theodosia, she says. She hadn't known until she looked up the source code. Did she like it? Yes, says Grandmother. Do you? After a little pause, Grandmother says, Yes. As stockholders, on a level of financial benefit you're not supposed to mention in polite company, the family gets invited to a preview of the Mori exhibit that will be going up at the Modern Art Museum. Mori's welcome, reads the card. 
Why wouldn't they be? Sophia's mother cuts her a look meant to shut her up, marks 3 plus M on the RSVP. The day of, she knocks on grandmother's door and finds her dressed in her best afternoon suit, sitting straighter than her grandmother ever had. When grandmother stands up, she runs her hands along the skirt. You look nice, Sophia says for no reason, and grandmother looks up and smiles. At the reception, they clap politely for someone in public relations who gets up and makes a speech that's quite carefully not talking about how public it's about to make the memories of its obliging Maury's, who signed the contract without striking the education clause. If Maury isn't charging for the exhibit, it's for academic benefit. Nothing you can do. Sophia tries to imagine a museum exhibit where her nanos are on display, alongside little flickering records of everything they've done to her body. How many times incision would come up? How none of them would ever say how grandmother had read her a story a long time ago and noticed that something was wrong. Her parents seem excited. Paul Whitcover has been curating the exhibit personally, which is the kind of press you apparently can't buy. Grandmother, on her father's left, looks straight ahead, as still as the year she was turned off. Please enjoy the exhibit, the public relations woman says, and thank you so much for letting us share with the world what your loved ones have meant to us. Almost Everybody who stands up touches their mori on the elbow, even though most of the moris are already moving in the right direction. Sophia flexes her hands in her pockets. Somewhere, she can't even feel it anymore, the white blood cells in her body are marching her nanomeds where they need to go. They only do what they need to do, the doctors had told her, to reassure her. Your body gives all the orders. The human body is a remarkable thing. The exhibit has aesthetic components and explanations on how speech patterns can be recreated and anticipated by algorithms. Sophia hopes the person they used for the example on how to build a convincing facial structure gave permission and that they're not here to see half their face stretched over biofoam on one half of a head of gleaming chrome. The most amazing thing we've discovered is that despite everyone's individuality, and there's infinite individuality, how many things we really share. We're all alike in what we really value. It's wonderful how alike we are. They cut to a building lobby in soft focus. There are no markers of a hospital and Sophia suspects that's on purpose. A man with gray hair at his temples comes out into the center of the frame, waving. The camera cuts to a tearful wife, her arm around a golden-haired child. The 
child waves back. Beams starts running. As they embrace, it fades back to wit cover. His voice where their laughter should be. Maury's work right now is to help one family at a time. But there's hope someday that the work we're doing can bring all of us closer together. The dark room behind it is enormous. Ceilings like a cathedral and a mosaic of memories. Empty landscapes and arguments and babies and the lowering of coffins, screaming fights playing out in silence. Embraces so tight there's no telling whose memory it is. Sophia stares straight up for a long time. Her breath presses against the front of her throat, in and out. At the edge of the dome, creased where it meets the wall, one of her grandmother's memories. Sophia, seven years old, sitting cross-legged on the floor and solemnly paging through a book. There's a scab on one knee. Maybe her last one ever. Her parents are wandering through vaguely back out to the reception room. Grandmother hovers near the door, neck craned. She's seen it too. When Sophia's close enough, grandmother says... I don't think I would have let them do it. Her arms shoved into her pockets, frowning so hard Sophia can hear the metal straining underneath. Sophia touches grandmother's elbow. Grandmother looks at her. Sophia looks back. No, I don't think you would have. Come on, they'll be looking for us. They walk side by side through the party, waiting for a chance to go home. Well, for me, of course, there is, um, there's nothing that connects us to our humanity better than a story about robots, right? I mean, it's why Data was such a popular character on Star Trek, because, you know, he was Pinocchio. He was the robot who was trying to become a real live human being. And it's weird to me, the sort of worry and... Um, consternation that people are expressing over the continuing development of AI and 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 
its continuing sophisticated iterations. And the logical progression or the logical, most logical outcome seems to be by consensus that AI are going to kill us all in our sleep, which is number one, sort of sad. Number two, I, I, I don't get it. See, I think the problem is a lot of writers of speculative fiction in movies and TV haven't read Asimov. They haven't read the Foundation Trilogy. Daniel R. Olivas, the, the Three Robotic Laws, a robot, number one, cannot do a human any harm. What makes us think that AI are going to become sentient and then go against their own programming. They are robots, people. They are not going to rise up in rebellion any more than your microwave will. At least that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Back in the day, I directed a, a Disney Channel TV movie uh, called Smart House. And, and it's about a, a house that has all this sophisticated technology that a family wins in, in a contest. And uh, the protagonist of the movie, the young teenage boy, um, has recently lost his mother. Um, and the programming of the artificial intelligence, Pat, uh, played by the fabulously talented Katie Seagal, goes haywire. And again, you know, that, which is the typical technology gone awry scenario. Um, and again, it's that human factor that that was pointed up in the telling of that story, that it's the heart, it's compassion, um, it's the intangible things that come very naturally to the human animal that, that cannot be programmed. It's, it's literally the language of creation with a big C. And as human beings, I don't think we will ever be able to duplicate that untouchable, undefinable spark that makes us human. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the best in the business, Julia Smith, with associate producer credits going to Kristen Torres. Our editing and sound design by Brendan Burns, who knew the kid was so talented. My thanks to Genevieve Valentine for allowing me to read her story. Check out her novels, Persona and Icon, part of a sci-fi thriller series, or her outer space disaster novella, Dreamhouses. And hey, can I suggest something to you all? If you like the show, I'm thinking you may know someone else who might enjoy it. So why not recommend an episode to a friend? And while you're at it, why not also leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts? And why not include a story suggestion for us? We read them and we use them. 
We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story and also exclusive bonus author interviews all on Stitcher Premium. Each story goes up one week early and it's ad-free. Just go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar or if you're listening in Stitcher, just tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our supervising producer is Josephine Maharana. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and yours truly, LeVar Burton. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. Still waiting for that guy to give me my name back. I'll stop complaining and see you next time, but you don't have to take my word. Stitcher. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.